Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley. Oh, what a goal! For, For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. And as our regular listeners will have heard on last week's show, after 300 plus episodes, times are changing at Box to Box. And this is our first show, not on our home of the last six years, the digital radio station NTS News Talk Sport. In the coming weeks, we'll announce our new traditional broadcast home. But in the meantime, you'll find us on all the usual podcast hubs, and we hope you continue to like what you hear, including most of our regular voices and features. But one thing's for sure, we'll do our level best to go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game, as we have for the past 300 plus episodes. First edition news with Willem van Denderen shortly and as always we'll be joined during the show by our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson, former Socceroos squad member and star of the NSL Scott Patterson will join us to talk about the Socceroos two excellent World Cup qualifying results over the past week against China and Vietnam respectively. There's plenty of work to do to get to Qatar so we'll dig a little deeper into the road ahead. We'll talk about more Socceroo and Matilda action with Willem even though the international break has had our men on hold with club duties our women were right in the middle of the opening round of the Women's Super League, so plenty to talk about there. Then we'll chat with PFA co-CEO Bo Bush about this week's groundbreaking collective bargaining agreement, which will see footballers in the A-League and W-League on improved conditions across both competitions, directly aimed at driving up playing standards in the elite leagues. The CBA is aligned with the new five-year broadcast agreement with Viacom, CBS and Network 10, and it's the natural next step of the deal in investing and growing the game. Looking forward to a chat with Bo about that, and we'll wrap it up with a new look stoppage time extended to cover all the important news stories of the week michael derrick and i will get stuck into the key stories as i say and you can rest assured there'll be a few opinions flying around as there always is so edge it's a new era for the show and uh, it's an exciting one it is an exciting era and uh, welcome to all our listeners right around australia and the world who are tuning in to us uh, via the various podcast catches and uh, now we're looking forward to the future and in a, in a few weeks rob we'll be able to uh, reveal all about our new uh, traditional broadcast home looking forward to that we will and uh, we have to acknowledge our great mate dean hennessy he's not gone for good he's going to be joining us from time to time but he has been with us since the get-go but uh, he uh, he's just going to take a little step back for for the time being yes um uh, we he's not in an accent won't be lost to uh, our <laughs> listeners uh, we'll have him back, and uh, despite the fact he's been in Australia over 30 years, he still sounds like he's off the boat. Exactly. All right. Well, Willem, we get started every week with some news. How about you kick us off, buddy? No worries, Rob. Great to be with you guys for another week. The Socceroos have become just the fourth side in history to win 10 consecutive World Cup qualifiers in a single campaign after a 1-0 win over Vietnam in Hanoi. Ryan Grant's header late in the first half was enough for Australia to seal the points and remain top of Group B. And Ryan McGree, again, they'll swing it back towards Ryan Grant, who is furthest forwards. And Australia have the goal that they craved. Ryan Grant with a collector's item, his first for his country. It was, however, though, a bit of a divisive result. Many quick to criticise the side and the performance. Rob, I think just about everyone would agree that it was pretty ugly, but we know over the past 15 to 16 years, AFC qualifiers can often get like that. I think on this occasion, you've just got to take the points and move on. I just absolutely dumbfounds me when I hear critics like that. I mean, these are just 
unprecedented times. I mean, our guys have to play a home match in, in Doha, first of all. They get a 3-0 result against China. And then they go to Vietnam. They play on a training pitch with frogs all over it. They play in, in massive humidity. Uh, I mean, Mark Schwarzer made a comment on the Optus podcast uh, just about, uh, about those very points. So, you know, Graham Arnold's done an amazing job. The players have done an excellent job. They've travelled halfway across the world to get the result. They've got six points. Um, and fair dinkum, just... Pipe down, uh, be grateful, and um, and look forward to Qatar. We've got a, a road ahead, and we've all got to be together. I mean, what's your thinking on this, Edge? Well, I need to correct you on one point, Rob. They weren't frogs in Hanoi; they were toads. Of course, and yes. uh, and of course, I think when you when you saw the grabs of Martin Boyle, I think it was the first time he'd seen a, a toad. They're obviously a lot bigger than the, the frogs hasn't in been Scotland. To Queensland. Absolutely, but look, um, fantastic uh, effort by the Socceroos. I mean, there is always. Um, a healthy debate over their playing style. But uh, I'm a traditionalist. You know, I've been to all of these places. I understand the significance of what it means to travel there and uh, and play football there and, and, and do it at the elite level. And, and you know, um, we got a result. Um, look, you know, we could have had a penalty against us at, at one point. We got a bit of luck there. Um, Vietnam and Edge, I think I'm more interested in your opinion chart. on this is the uh, the lack of crowd. I, I really did think that that was a, a, a major factor in the result for us, uh, um, the fact that um, the stadium was empty. Yeah, as soon as we were drawn in this group a couple of months ago, Michael immediately said, geez, Vietnam uh, away mm-hmm. in front of forty to 45,000 at the, uh, the Median Stadium stands out as a real challenge. So it was fortunate in a sense that we didn't have to face that, but also unfortunate for the boys and for travelling fans because uh, according to you, Michael, a very well-travelled football fan, uh, that is an experience that you want to have uh, across your career. But Michael, there is great hope looking forward that the Socceroos and, and the Matildas beyond that could return home next month for the first time in a very long time to host Oman maybe even with a few at the stands at Bankwest Stadium. What are you hearing from your vast and varied network about uh, how close that is to getting the green light? Uh, it's not close, um, but it's a, a work in progress and there is uh, ongoing discussions. It, it, it just might be a little bit too early considering um, the, the pace of the vaccine, the vaccine rollout. We might just miss it, but it's, it's, still, a, it's still a possibility, put it that way. And, and it's also a possibility... Uh, to be played here without fans as well. So I think the Federation wants to play in Australia um, and uh, that is a priority. It, it, it all comes down to um, a thawing in the hard border that we've currently got uh, in relation to um, overseas visitors and a biosecurity bubble that could be put in place to ensure that the Omanis, um, if any of them have COVID, uh, it's not spread in any way. So I, I think it's important work that governments and uh, sporting organisations do because the future will be uh, more situations like this and let's hope it gets up. But my understanding is um, it's still swinging in the wind, Willem. Elsewhere in Group B, Japan dominated possession against China but could only manage one goal with Yuya Asako's finish on 40 minutes, enough to take the three points. Saudi Arabia also managed a 1-0 away win over Amman via Saleh Al-Sheri's goal in the 42nd minute. So the three Group B favourites, if you like, all winning in similar fashion to a sole goal late in the first half. Over in Group A, Iran made a big statement with a 3-0 win over Iraq. South Korea defeated Lebanon 1-0 and the UAE and Syria settled for a one-all draw. So Michael, normal service resuming in the AFC qualifiers only a couple of games into the 10 match stint Australia Iran and Saudi Arabia all pushing for the top spot and Japan and South Korea are off the mark after their slow start in the first games absolutely Willem um, it's going to be an, it's going to be a thrilling ride and uh, what about uh, Australia's match 
in Japan in the next window at Saitama Stadium in Tokyo. Something to look forward to. The PFA have announced their collective bargaining agreement for the next five seasons, which will run in conjunction with the APL's current broadcast contract. The A-League salary cap will grow from 2.5 to 2.6 million in the next two years. Clubs can also designate two players that earn between $300,000 to $600,000 to sit outside the cap on top of current marquee rules. The W-League minimum player payments will rise from $315,000 to $383,000 a season over the next two years, while guaranteed player development funding will also rise to 800,000. So really looking forward to getting into the nuts and bolts of this with Bo Bush later on. But for now, Rob, I suppose the key takeaways are that there'll be more money for the W League and female development within clubs. And we often hear of the uh, the lack of depth uh, just below the top Matilda. So hopefully that'll go some way to fixing that. And for the A-League clubs, plenty of flexibility. Uh, the cap's still in place, but four players outside of it and loyalty payments increasing too. I really like that because clubs can uh, can succeed or fail uh, of their own hand, really. Cap's still in place, but loads of uh, loads of wriggle room. Yeah, look, I think for me, the, the real key takeouts are all about the women's game and uh, and where that's heading. Uh, it's the, the one with the most growth insofar as uh, uh, commercial support, fans, players. Um, we're at the top uh, of the world rankings in, in, in so far as our performance is concerned and, and there's a, a lot of, of blue sky ahead for, for the women's game. Uh, you look at the, the Women's Super League on the past weekend, a lot of the, the games now being played in the main stadiums for the first time instead of having to find the matches on uh, streaming services they're being played on sky so you know the 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 shift is changing and happening dramatically and uh, and and this is just a great sign and good to see um, positive announcements um, coming out of uh, head office after the deal because uh, you know I think there's a fair bit of work to be done to, to fine-tune and polish that deal with 10 and Paramount plus but uh, but these are positive signs for, for a real structural change in in the in the short to medium term over to Europe now, Italy have broken the record for the longest unbeaten run in international football, putting five past Lithuania in their 37th match undefeated. Some claimed they'd already set the record in their 36th match, but Brazil had a claim to that record between 1993 and 96. Confusion around that streak stemmed from a match they'd played against a Romania B-side, but Mancini's Italy have now removed any doubt. They sit first in their qualifying group, although have played two matches more than second-placed Switzerland. So back to you, Rob, our Italian ex- uh, expert. Streaks like this in sport are often nice, but as we know, count for little if unrewarded. So the great thing for, for Mancini and his boys is that they've already claimed a major title and this really adds shine uh, shine to that. Yeah, it's uh, it's in, an incredible result. But as he says, uh, uh, you go back to the um, the great Italian teams of the, uh, the 30s and the streaks that, uh, that were broken for various reasons, which uh, the historians of the game are, are well aware of. So he pays due respect to the past, but... Uh, Again, he uh, is a, a strategic player and not wanting to to, um, to to highlight too much the the result because uh, you know there is Qatar ahead and and he won't be satisfied until they can bookend the Euro result with uh, with the World Cup in Qatar. So um, yeah, I think it's um, it's an incredible, obviously an incredible result, but I think uh, very clever by Mancini to uh, to just keep a lid on it to a certain extent. And a final one for me, five Premier League clubs have been banned from selecting Brazilian players this weekend as punishment for refusing their release to the national team. 
FIFA has imposed the ban at the request of the Brazilian FA and could impose a 3-0 forfeit on any club should they breach it. The European Club Association is seeking a solution on behalf of the clubs. The Brazilian FA have asked FIFA uh, not to press the ban on Everton due to the goodwill that exists between they and the Federation after Richarlison was released for both the Copper and Olympic Games. So a nice side note there that Brazil and Everton are on good terms. But to the serious stuff, Rob, I think, or, or Michael, I think in my opinion you have to offer... Uh, you have to honour the FIFA windows if you're to operate under the uh, the FIFA banner. Um, but I guess this is a result of the world not necessarily ending or finding a cure for, for COVID-19, but, but ploughing on through it. And these issues are going to uh, crop up the longer that that stays the case. Plenty of tension between uh, CONMEBOL, uh, the South American Confederation, its members and European football clubs. That's been uh, going, going along as long as I've been able to walk that one. But... Um, what was interesting was there was real controversy over the reason to play uh, the last edition of Copa America. The European clubs and the players, Willem, they wanted to scrap it because of the pandemic, because they wanted more time to fit in these World Cup qualifiers. As a result of getting Copa America away, Conmebol um, is miles behind in its World Cup schedule, hence they've been scheduling three matches in windows instead of two. Um, there's obviously complications around um, quarantine and uh, and uh, bu- um, travel bubbles and uh, the approval of players to get in and out of uh, nations. We saw that unfold, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit more detail with Derek later in stoppage time. But there's a lot to this, and the frosty relationship between the South American Confederation and European football clubs is right at the heart of it. Don't you worry about that. All right, Willem, well done, mate. Um, great start to... Uh the show, we will have you back very soon. We're going to talk more Socceroos and Matils, dig a little deeper into some of the club action that's going on. But next, we're going to talk to uh, former Socceroos squad member, a favourite of ours in the old NSL, Scott Patterson. He's been on the show many times over the years to uh, look at those two results against China and Vietnam and that road ahead. Oman, Saudi Arabia, Japan, these are huge matches and uh, and all of the positive news um, could easily get, get wobbly if we don't get the results we need there. So stick around. Scott Patterson after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. It's been a busy, busy week for international football, but definitely for the Socceroos. Uh, We went in with some trepidation. We couldn't play the opening World Cup qualifier at home, even though we were designated at home. Had to go to Doha. The boys got the result against China and then backed it up with uh, with a great result uh, you know not in the eyes of some in terms of playing style against Vietnam so six points out of six but to talk about it in a little more detail friend of the show Scott Patterson former Socceroos squad member himself NSL player how are you Scott? Very well absolutely really looking forward to having a chat. And relieved a little I mean I know there's been plenty of critics out there and you know we're a little bit um, you know, puzzled by the attitude of some. I mean, you take six points where you can get them, don't you? And uh, the boys have done a, a pretty good job. But, uh, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What's your assessment of the opening? Oh, look, matches? at the end of the day, sport's about results. And at, at the elite level, it's it's all about results. And performance is important, but results come first. And 3-0, 1-0, six points, two clean sheets, you know, what more do you want? Um we can talk about the performance in a minute, but I think we should acknowledge the conditions um, against Vietnam, you know, 30 degrees, 75% humidity. The pitch was very poor in my view. So 
I would have thought, you know, Graham Arnold was in that squad I was in. He's a ripper bloke. I was very pleased for him. Um, but I would have thought after the game he would have said, guys, let's just uh, have a shower and go back to the hotel and talk about it some other time because it wasn't a great performance, but it's a great result. This debate does consume uh, the football public, um, and I just was interested in a couple of comments by some of your, your peers. Scott Ollerinshaw, he said fans were naive if they think we can dominate on the road in places like Hanoi or Bangkok. Anywhere else in the world, a 1-0 away win to a difficult destination is lavished with praise. This, this shows that we are an immature footballing public and we don't fully understand the game and its nuances. And Robbie Slater, he went even, even he went harder, I should say. He said the fans of the national team are spoilt. He said <laughs> what Graham Arnold and his team have done is quite extraordinary. Ten in a row. You have to go back to nine in a row when it was my team in 1997 under Terry Venables. But they were mostly friendlies. In fact, I think all of them might have been friendlies. So are football fans naive? Are we spoilt? Uh or is it, Look, just fair, is it just fair enough for us to slag off at the national team uh, after they play that the way that they did? Oh, look, if you haven't been there and done it, you'll never know. But um, I think some of the comments from Scott Ollenshaw in particular probably ring a bell with me, to be honest. But um, the, the, the fact is that um, the, the conditions... I, I noted Tommy Rogic right now. I like Tommy Rogic. He runs at people. He creates things. You probably noticed the lack of energy that he had throughout the game. I was looking for Tom Rogic to run at people, create some space, and it sort of never happened. And it sort of said to me that the conditions are pretty difficult to, to get moving. And, um, you know, they got the goal just before half time against Vietnam and probably felt pretty comfortable in the second half to just get through to the 90 minutes and take the three points and go home. So, you yeah, know, look, everyone wants um, perfect results and perfect performances. It's just not. It's just not achievable um, at, at the elite level. Absolutely. And Vietnam had not lost at home in six years. And Trent Sainsbury described the service as fluffy. I've never heard a, a service described as fluffy f uh, before, SP, but what do you reckon fluffy means? Yeah. <laughs> it means the ball won't roll properly. I mean, when, when the camera honed in on the pitch, I, I was actually horrified. It was so, it was, it was spongy, fluffy, bumpy, whatever you want to call it. Um, it, it almost looked to me like it was a, a doctored cricket pitch in, in cricket terminology um, where they didn't want a, a fast, flat surface where we could get going. So, you know, th those grounds are difficult to play on. I remember the days in the NSL playing on grounds like Marconi, St George. You, you went up from Melbourne to Sydney and it was, you know, six degrees warmer and you're playing on big pitches that are sort of spongy and it takes it saps it out of your legs if you're not used to it. So, um, you know... It, again, not a great performance against Vietnam for me, but a great result. So you just take it and run. You know, we talk about it a lot on this show, the rising nations. I mean, we, we were at that match uh, at Amy Park a couple of years ago against Thailand. You know, a, a, a nation that unless you've been there and you've seen the passion the Thais have for, uh, for football, you, you could just never really grapple with it. Uh, Vietnam, very, very similar. So th these are countries that, um, that are proud of, uh, of their burgeoning football culture and, uh, and they want to be at the World Cup. It's a World Cup...
by name uh, for a reason. And uh, you know, there's 48 teams in the World Cup after next, and you know they're, they're preparing to to, uh, to to make regular runs at it. And, uh, so uh, you know, for, for us to get these results against the likes of China and Vietnam, uh, as the the shift in 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 football politics and 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 performances on the park takes place, you know, they can't be underestimated, can they? Oh, absolutely not. And I mean, I noted the Korea, uh, the Vietnam team had a Korean coach. A lot of these smaller countries, well, we call them smaller countries, but they're not anymore in terms of world soccer. Uh, they've got European coaches. They're, they're employing um, highly educated, trained uh, people. And what they normally do is sort out the defence first. Because if you think back um, to, our, to, to my day, 80s, 90s, there was a lot of big scores that used to go on in these types mm-hmm. of games. You're not seeing that anymore. That's because they're set up defensively. And, you know, the whole 5-4-1 scenario where you've got nine players within, um, each player within 10 metres of each other shuffling across the 18-yard line, good luck trying to break that down. They're they're fit, they're strong, and they know how to defend. So, um, yeah, these countries are are difficult to beat now. And the first, to be honest, the first stage of qualifying, we won eight in a row. I wasn't surprised. I think we get through that quite comfortably. This stage now is when it's really challenging. And I do think, to be honest, we've played the two weakest sides in the group. And the next three games, you know, Amman at home, if we can play at home, Japan away, Saudi Arabia. I mean, they're, they're the challenges. So we're going to need to probably perform better, would be my comment, to get the favourable results. Yeah, and that's um, the the next sort of direction we want to take this conversation are, are those three matches coming up that they really are critical in so far as uh, how the, the group's going to shape because there are a lot of games. There are six uh, teams in each group and, and that's obviously five home, five away matches, 30 points uh, on offer. So, you know, you can have a slow start and uh, and if another team wobbles, then uh, you can regroup. And the Japanese, um, they will be absolutely desperate to get the full three points a- against Australia. But, uh, you know, we've got to get through Oman before then and uh, you know as we've been talking about for the past few years on this show is that a lot of these Middle Eastern countries are seeing Qatar as a, a veritable home World Cup and uh, and they are more desperate than ever to play in that World Cup so they're, they're more than just a banana skin Oman in that next match on the 7th of October and uh, you know we, we did talk off the top of the show about the you know the 50-50 proposition as to whether it will be played at home or not but um, you know Arnie's really got to have his, uh, his uh, focus on all the way through and the players to, to get through this tricky next three-game phase. No doubt. And and look at Oman, they beat Japan. I mean, we know Japan's probably rebuilding a bit after Honda and a few of those world-class players have sort of moved on. But, like, you know, they're going to be very difficult. Japan's always difficult. And um, Saudi Arabia, well, you know, they could well be the best team in the group. So, you know, that, that, that's the test now, those next three. If we can get through that uh, undefeated, to be honest, right now, I'd probably take one win and two draws out of that. Mm. You know, if we could if we could manage five points out of those three games um, and then get the six points off China and Vietnam again, then um, we're probably going to go through. I mean, got to remember, guys, last World Cup um, in this stage, we finished third in our group and had to go into a playoff and then another playoff against Honduras to make the World Cup final. So that was a real battle. And um, I think this is a battle as well, to be honest. SP, let's have a talk about the team. Um, I want to first of all start with obviously uh, our defensive pairing at the back. We've only conceded two goals in the past 10 matches. Trent Sainsbury and the tall man Harry Suter, they look like they've cemented their place. What are your views on on that combination? 
and um, will Harry Souter will he stand up against uh, some of these some of these more important teams? Yeah, well, I think the test is to come, Michael, on that. Um, Sainsbury's been around for a while. Souter um, is obviously quite new, but he's performed well so far, um, and they look solid enough. But you know, I think the best opposition we're going to play is coming up, and um, that'll be the real test. Um, Ryan Grant at fullback. Look, I think he's a very good A-League player. Um, I'm not convinced about him at this level, I must say, as, as a just watching the, the team. Um, I know he scored the goal the other night, but um, and then, you know, left back seems to be a bit of a um, Russian roulette. There's a, there's a good young kid playing for Sydney City at the moment at left back, and um, he might be the one for the future. But um, it's, it's solid enough for the moment. But again, I, I, in my mind, I keep coming back to haven't been tested fully yet. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, now this is the the important question. I mean, uh, let me just run through some names. Awar Mabil, Matt Leckie, Martin Ball, Tom Rogic, Aaron Moy, Jamie McLaren, Riley McGree, Chris Economides, Mitchell Duke, Adam Taggart. They've all had a go over the past uh, 24 months as playing in that front three or, or even with the attacking midfielder just uh, in behind them, the number, the number 10. So... A, a, SP, I'll put you on the spot. Who? What is the best combination in the attacking front third that the Socceroos can put out on the, on the park? You know, what's his, what's Graham Arnold's best combination there? Oh, look, I think Aaron Moy is the real quality player in the squad. And I think um, we, I'd like to see him further up the pitch um, playing in maybe that number 10 role. I think he's the real quality player that can unlock defences. He, he's got the vision, he's got the passing ability, so he has to be the main man for me. Um, I, I like Tommy Rogic because he runs at people and um, I like to see him in the side. I think, to be honest, with Taggart, um, we, we, we don't have a natural striker at the moment for that international level, which is a, a real concern. So, um, Mabil's still feeling his way. McGree, once again, I look at some of these guys and I think good A-League player is trying to make his way at the next level. I mean, it's a big jump, guys, between A-League and maybe some of these, you know, smaller Asian leagues they're playing in and then playing international against Japan and Saudi Arabia trying to qualify for a World Cup. So there's a lot of the question marks there. Um, uh, one player I'd like to see get an extended run, um, to be honest, is uh, Connor Metcalf from Sid uh, Melbourne City. I'm a Melbourne City supporter. Um, I just like players who run at people to break the lines. And Conor Metcalf's got strength, pace, fitness. Um, he's quite aggressive. Doesn't mind putting his shoulder, in, shoulder into people, knocking them out the way. I think he makes great runs into the box and late runs into the box. So a bit like Tim Cahill did. So I think he, he looks to me, of all the young players that I've seen emerge out of the A-League in the last couple of years, he looks to me the one that... If I was Arnie and I was talking to Arnie, I'd say, mate, give this kid a go. Give him an extended run because he can he can create, he can break the lines. So I'm a big fan of his and I hope he gets that opportunity. All right, Scotty, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Who'd have thought that we'd be uh, talking about qualifying for our fifth World Cup in a row when we were, were uh, all biting in uh, the quick in uh, in Sydney at Hunbush yeah. uh, before that Uruguay match. Um, they're great times. We've got to be grateful for them and... Uh, um, and uh, Arnie, um, well, we reckon him and the boys are doing a pretty good job. It might not be the golden generation, but they're getting a result. And uh, we, uh, you know, if we can uh, keep this sort of form up, then then we should be going to Qatar. Yeah, look, I think it's really important we get there because the game um, in Australia with the A League, where it's at at the moment, it's obviously some challenges there, and it's just really important to keep the game at a high profile. And 
best way to do that is to play in the World Cup finals. Excellent. Good friend of the show, Scotty Patterson. Thanks for joining us again, SP. Pleasure, guys. All right, stick around after the break. Willem van Denderen will be back. We're going to talk more Socceroos and Matildas. There are players all over the world doing some great things, and we're going to dive into that after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, welcome back to Box to Box. We're talking Socceroos before the break, but there's a lot more news around the world with our men's and of course our women's game the women's super league kicked off on the weekend plenty of australian women in action over there in the uk but before we get into it with willem is your home running out of space well you know what to do you need to call storage king whether you're decluttering moving or renovating downsizing or creating a home office storage king has the answer and they are the canstar blue 2021 customer service award winner so you would not go anywhere else for your storage needs with stores everywhere there is a location just around the corner jump onto storageking.com.au and find your nearest store use the space calculator to work out what you need and storage king will give you back some space people all over australia have been doing it this last 18 months make more space at your home with Storage King. All right, gentlemen. Willem, you've got a stack for us. I mean, we talked to uh, to Scott Patterson before the break, as I mentioned, um, but uh, but there is a lot more news around the, the world with our Matildas and Socceroos. Yeah, there certainly is, Robin, with our new format here on box to box We're going to keep this segment strictly Australian-based for the next little while, which I'm very excited about. It's certainly where my heart lies in a football sense. So Socceroos and Matildas Central to start for the Green and Gold Army, of course. The Socceroos and Matildas are hopefully headed back home very shortly. So what better time to get on board the road to either Qatar 2022 or the 2023 Women's World Cup? Sign up to the mailing list at ggatravel.com.au and be among the first to know about upcoming overseas tours with the Green and Gold Army. The first weekend of the FA Women's Super League is in the books and Hayley Rasso and Alana Kennedy made a cracking start to life with Manchester City. Rasso played the full match and managed an assist in the 4-0 win over Everton while Kennedy came on for the final 20 minutes. Here is Rasso to Shaw and it's three! Everton are falling apart here and Khadija Shaw... Gets a debut goal. In London, Steph Catley was involved for Arsenal as they took the chocolates over Sam Kerr's Chelsea 3-2, while Mackenzie Arnold played a full game in goal for West Ham. In France, Ellie Carpenter played the first hour for Olympic Lyon in a 6-0 win over Saint-Étienne, while Betty Yode was thrown in the deep end on debut for Granadilla Tenerife, going down 5-0 to Barcelona. All of those players, save Betty Yode, have been selected in Tony Gustafsson's 25-player squad for the training camp and friendly against Ireland on September the 22nd. Michael, there's a few W League players included for uh, an early camp in their careers. Angela Beard, Remy Seamson, Jamila Rankin and Winona Heatley have all been invited into the camp. Caitlin Ford, the big O mission. She's going to remain with Arsenal. Firstly, uh, your thoughts on the squad for the match against Ireland? Well, interesting. Obviously, Caitlin Ford, it's the first time in a long time that uh, she won't be uh, involved in a in a Matildas program. So obviously that opened the door for a forward. And we've often spoken about uh, Melina Ayres and Remy Seamson. And it looks like Remy got the nod ahead of Melina for, for that. So well done. Um, it'll be interesting. She goes into a forward mix that obviously has Gilnick and and, uh, and Samantha Kerr, um, as well as Hayley Rasso. So that's an important, uh, uh, important selection. But uh, well done to... Um, uh, some returning uh, Matildas, Emma Checker and Jenna McCormick, who weren't involved in the Olympics, but they've come back in. But it looks like the defence, Willem, is getting a bit of a 
a bit of a look at. Um, Jamila Rankin is a defender, a left-sided defender, and also is uh, Winona, Winona Heatley. Um, so um, that's two young defenders into the mix, and obviously it's an opportunity for Tony Gustafsson to take a, a good close look at some of those fringe players, and we'll see what happens. But um, it, it's a good-looking squad. Elise Kellett-Knight and Carly Grosbacken are two players that are attending the camp, but um, the Federation's already advised that they are carrying injuries and it'll be interesting to see whether Elise Keller Knight can make her way back in any um, serious way after um, her long period off with an ACL. Despite the fact she went to the Olympic Games, she did not have any time uh, on the field in, uh, in Tokyo. And Tony Gustafsson's going to have a good long look at the players, as you mentioned. And we, as the public, might be able to do that as well because news is breaking that we, or, or in Bank West, uh, Stadium Parramatta might be hosting two matches against the US uh, next month. What are you hearing on that front? Yes, I understand those games have been in the pipeline for some time and they all depended on the relaxing of the international border and the ability to operate a bio biosecurity bubble around uh, the international players that are coming in and out of Australia. So um, if that news is breaking, Willem, that is, uh, that is a great sign and uh, won't it be fantastic to see the Matildas play against the United States on home soil twice. And Rob, you might have a little bit of mail on this one as well. Yeah, well, look, this story is breaking even as we speak, even as we've recorded from the top of the show. Vince Regari is publishing it in the Sydney Morning Herald. And whilst the, the headline act in, in this story is the two USA matches, the, the detail also talks about uh, the uh, the Saudi Arabia match on November 11. So they might not be able to get this bubble sorted out as soon as the Amman match. But uh, this would be huge news if we can get uh, a match played, uh, one of the Socceroos World Cup qualifiers. So uh, so this is just great breaking news uh, at the um, the, uh, the matches look like the, the two Brazil matches uh, uh, for the Matildas in October, late October, the uh, the Socceroos v Saudi and then the Matildas v USA. So uh, big, big times coming up and, uh, and, and a glimpse into the post-COVID world. Plenty of action uh, from an Australian point coming up over the next week. Next Tuesday, the last 16 of the Asian Champions League is going to commence. Uh, a number of Aussies will hope to be involved there. Former Perth Glory teammates Adam Taggart and Alex Grant could swear, square off uh, with Saritza Osaka to play at Pohang Steelers, while Mitch Langerak at Nagoya will face Daegu. And you'd think the defensive focus of Mitch and his defenders there at Nagoya will be well suited to knockout football. And Aurelio Vidmar, of course, manages BG Patum United of Thailand, formerly... Uh, formerly Bangkok Glass. They face a very tough trip to Jean Book Motors. Uh, and on the domestic front, the FFA Cup is going to finally return next week, all going to plan with Peninsula Power to host Brisbane Raw on Tuesday night. The following night, Edge Hill United and uh, they are an amateur side from far north Queensland's Premier League will host the Gold Coast Knights. Rob, that'll be 692 days since the last FFA Cup final. Uh, Adelaide United defeating Melbourne City in what was a totally different back wor- uh, world back then. I am um, beside myself. Hopefully this can get off the ground without a hitch. Yeah, look, it's just uh, one of those uh, elements of football that we just got so used to, wasn't it? Uh, I know a lot of these matches are going to be played on the weekends and we're not going to see as many midweek matches by the sound of, of the scheduling but uh, uh, but one way or the other it'll eventually come back and uh, and, and we will I know we talked about it seeing those sort of wafting kebab stands and uh, and and sights of young kids racing around uh, suburban grounds so yeah look it's it's fantastic it's 690 days you said amazing there's been a bit of a distressing story however break around uh, the FFA Cup this week that uh, definitely needs to be mentioned ECU Joondalup uh, a powerhouse of West 
Western Australian football. Uh, a lot of excitement uh, that they've made the national stage for the first time. But their UK import, Danny Hodgson, uh, is in intensive care with severe head and brain injuries after a random attack in Perth. Police have charged a 15-year-old boy over the incident. His parents, uh, obviously over in the UK, uh, found it difficult to get over here, but the, the club community and the WA soccer community have pulled through, and uh, fortunately they're going to be arriving in the country in the coming days. So from everyone here at box to box uh, we're hoping you can pull through Danny and return to uh, a good standard of life and hopefully to the football pitch as well. And Michael, you'd ex- uh, expect that there'll be some emotional scenes when Jundalup play their first FFA Cup match in a couple of weeks' time. Absolutely, and uh, let's hope his parents who are trying to get to uh, Western Australia from England, uh, let's hope that they, uh, the governments and uh, the uh, Emperor with no clothes, Mark McGowan, can uh, can do something good for a change and, uh, and, get, uh, and get his parents over there to help him... Uh, uh, see his way through what's a difficult time yeah no that's officially been facilitated they're on their way over and they'll be here any day now so uh, let's hope they can be by his side shortly uh, another one we want to touch on guys relates to the sports streaming field now we've been covering the sports flick story since it uh, made or uh, well, headlines Dylan has a party the founder there Robbie made a big splash in March when he said he was going to buy the Champions League rights it's all turned a little bit sour he's now under investigation from the New South Wales police over uh, complaints of fraud. Two of his investors have uh, alleged he has been fraudulent. Uh, It's alleged $2.5 million intended for the rights for the Rugby League World Cup were used for personal use, which he, through his lawyer, has denied. One of the investors concerned is Dominic Galati, formerly head of SBS Sport, while separately, as a party, is preparing to challenge his removal from the board of his own company. Vince Regari's also broken this one uh, pretty much from go to woe, along with Zoe Samios in the Nine Papers. Uh, Rob, as I said, we've covered this one from the start. Uh, we've, we've treated it with the respect it's deserved. It's been a bit of a surprising one, but I think all along there's just been an element of suspicion that uh, it doesn't quite stack up. And they've now gone dead. They're not taking any new subscribers, Sports Flick. Uh, they've gone sort of dark on their social media accounts. Uh, what doesn't really matter from a consumer point of view is if um, Mr. Azapati's guilty or not. But what it does matter uh, is that... Uh, well, we, we can't watch our bare-knuckle boxing or our Nicaraguan <laughs> rugby league. Exactly. Well, look, um, you say we, we gave it the respect that it deserved. It seems like um, everyone from UEFA down gave it more respect than it uh, deserved. Uh, I mean, we're talking about $2.9 million invested after that article was published in, in the Sydney Morning Herald by, by Vince and uh, Dominic Gallardi, Bertie Mariani. They're wondering where their money's gone. So, you know, this investigation is going to go long and far. And uh, it uh, it just, uh, it, it's almost uh, defies belief to think that uh, uh, that there is truth to it. But uh, it uh, it looks on the face of it that there's a legitimate case here and that the police are, are fully investigating it. So, uh, look, uh, to uh, his defence, Mr. Azapati says uh, his lawyers are in the process of filing proceedings against Dominic Galati, Ray Yunin and Dominic's entities for reinstatement of me as director of my own company and the damages that have been caused. Uh, he says it has been a terrible situation for the company and a large amount of duress has been pushed on myself and therefore sports flick and its shareholders. Yeah, just a crazy, crazy story, this one. Uh, it'll be fascinating to see the way it plays out.
And of course, the A League clubs are in the uh, they're off Broadway at the minute, but they're in the process of recruiting and scouting and tinkering their lists. And the Newcastle Jets, we know that after the Pappas is in the hot seat for the first time this season, their recruitment has really caught my eye, Michael. They've brought in Greek striker Savas Siatravanis this week on a one year deal uh, that follows. Uh, the recruitment of Georgian international Becker Mikultadze. He's 23 years old. And Brazilian attacker Daniel Penner, uh, he's 22. Also signed has been uh, striker Olivia Bumal. He's 31 years old and has six caps from Cameroon. Joining them will be known quantities Jordan Elsie and Matt Yerman. I think we could all agree that recruitment and scouting in the A-League used to be uh, used to be a little bit of a rolling gag, but it's really improved over the past five years when you see names such as this. there's a We don't know them as an Australian football public, but there's confidence that there are fewer busts than there used to be but uh, it's another step entirely to bring in young unproven players Michael especially when some will point to young Australian players who should be cutting their teeth at the level not international so this is another step into the dark for the Jets and good luck to them very interesting to see how it plays out when the season kicks off shortly yeah fascinating it's caught my eye too and uh, Arthur Pappas and his team at Newcastle Jets they're uh they're searching far and wide, and uh, the, the, I think the point that you raised that some of these players are quite young, but um, they're not terribly young. But they've been at the the, the forefront of um, of European football. Um, so yeah, look, time will tell. Arthur Pappas has got a good guy, good eye for players. There's no doubt about that. So um, wow, it'll be incredible, won't it? Mm, interesting times. Uh, but as you say, I think that the real point there is that there are a lot of young players in this country that are looking for their opportunity. So, uh, you know, they want to be pretty good players if uh, if they are going to take the uh, opportunities from those young rising stars in the domestic game. Gentlemen, well done, Will. Okay, Bo Bush, after the break, we're going to talk to him about the, the new collective bargaining agreement that's come off the back of the Paramount Channel 10 uh, deal and the ramifications of that, the structural changes that it makes to the future of the women's game and uh, and the uh, the financial underpinning of uh, the, the support structures around both the Matildas and the Socceroos into the future. That's Bo Bush, the co-CEO of the Professional Footballers Association, after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Uh, we were all very excited earlier in the year when the 10 Paramount deal was struck. We had great optimism that uh, there would be some big news. And uh, whilst the big news, as far as visual presentation of the game, is is beginning with the uh, the Socceroos games in uh, against China and, and Vietnam, structurally and uh, behind the scenes, the the finances of the game, the the world class work workplace that uh, we've been looking forward to is is beginning to uh, to come together and the. Uh, co-CEO of the Professional Footballers Association, Bo Bush, joins us to talk about that, CBA. How, how are you, Bo? Yeah, I'm really well, guys. Thanks for having me on. So, Bo, um, we can just imagine the amount of work that's gone on behind the scenes to, to make this happen. I mean, some of the key highlights are enhanced performance standards, 61% increase in the W league salary cap floor, immediate increase in the A-league salary cap floor, uh, the introduction of up to two designated players, uh, incremental increases in, in the W league and A-league minimum wages, it goes on. So there are so many elements to this that uh, um, that the, the next era of football in this country looks like it's it's happening as we speak. 
Yeah, we're really pleased with where with where we've landed. I think when we reflect on the past eighteen months, it's been really challenging. Um, but as you guys identified, there are some really encouraging signs for our sport now as to where we're at. And the hope was this negotiation could play a role in compounding gains. Um, I think what you identified at the start in relation to the new long-term broadcast deal is wonderful um, for the sport, obviously for the professional games and also professional leagues rather, and the national teams. Then we sort of saw the emergence of a host of really promising young players throughout both of our leagues, some great performances at the Olympics, and we think now this continues to move things forward and we think puts our game in a better place. So we're really, really pleased and we think we'll have some much-needed stability. We've had a really challenging past of 18 months to probably three years um, of short-term CBA, short-term broadcast deals, um, governance challenges with the separation of the league, and we think this um, puts the game on a better footing to be able to move forward. You mentioned the separation of the uh, the league from the Football Australia organisation. So this is the first time that you've negotiated a CBA directly with the clubs. Can you tell us about that process and um, and how it unfolded and um, and, and what's, it, what's it been like um, comparatively to previous negotiations when the FA was at the table as well? Yeah, so I think, look, from, from my perspective, this has been only the second one that I've been really heavily involved in. So I'm happy to sort of speak to, I guess, the differences. The past, the last one, when we were, you know, was really publicised that had we accepted that initial deal, it would have been really significant pay cuts for the players and an immediate impact um, on them. And we, we certainly didn't think that was in the interest of, its, of the sport. And we're able to find a way through that and get to a point where we did, did reach an agreement for last season. I think this year we're able to start a lot more a lot earlier we're able to be a lot more proactive and we're able to sit down at the start and say ultimately where do we want this league to go and what are we trying to achieve together and then from there we're able to be a lot more focused on the problems that the game have and try and solve them together apl were incredibly transparent with the with the finances of the game and that meant we were able to go in and really deeply understand the problems that we needed to solve and then there was a commitment that what we wanted to do was make sure the game was stabilized in the short term but equally make sure that we could get some wins for the players and the clubs. And we saw the workplace, as you guys identified, was a really key part of that. We saw a huge amount of diversity from um, some clubs, from the experience of players at one W League club to another, and same in the A League. And we wanted to sort of, I guess, elevate standards across the board, and we're able to do that. And the last sort of part was we wanted an incentive to grow the game together and to create a genuine partnership. And through the review triggers, we're able to do that. So I think... Time was a big factor. We'd also had built some trust, even though it was a difficult negotiation last time around, but the two parties built more trust in each other. And I think this time around, with APL separation being completed, they were able to put more energy into it as well. And same with us, without the same pressures that we had last time around. So I think that all added up um, to a much more collaborative um, relationship, which I think stands us all in really good stead going forward. Um, just about the women's side of the game, I, I mean, we've seen a lot of um, interest and, uh, and peak, um, peak involvement in the women's game recently with obviously uh, winning the Women's World Cup uh, bid, um, the Matildas ratings from the Olympic Games. And from what I understand, um, Paramount Plus and Tens got a great interest in uh, the women's side of the game as well. From your discussions with the APL, um, are the APL and the W League, are they starting to create greater focus 
on the women's uh, part of the game. I know gender equity was a big part of uh, your media release today, but um, can you just sort of expand on on the um, perceptions and the sort of attitude of the APL to the W League and um, and its improvement? Because um, a lot of people still think it's uh, it's it doesn't have the focus it should. Great things of, of this deal, if, if I speak really, really candidly, is both parties agree that this is just a step forward, that there's so much more to do. And in the women's game, I think that was reflected by us agreeing to an annual review. We're both extremely ambitious for the league. You know, one of the wonderful experiences of my role is being able to spend a lot of time with W League players and they know how big this, this game can be. They know the level of professionalism we need to get to to be able to really unlock the potential of the game. So I think to, to answer your question, everyone is certainly alive um, to the potential of women's football um, and our members have been for a long period of time and they've had to fight really hard to bring that front of mind for, for some but I think where we've landed now is this absolute elevation of the workplace standards. Um, but as I said at the, at the start of answering the question, I think it's just a step forward. There's a huge amount more to do. And this CBA gives us the flexibility not to just sort of sit, set and forget. That we're actually going to come back regularly to the table and assess where we're going and be able to make sure that we're aligned to what we want to achieve, which is ultimately building one of the best leagues in the world and having wonderful careers for our players and pro- producing world-class players. Yeah, and as your uh, co-chief executive, Catherine Gill, said, uh, the the player's vision for the negotiations was economic security and stability for the clubs, the leagues and the players, and that the agreement is a foundational step towards that objective and the leagues will be stronger as a result. Now, we all know uh, that uh, the men's game provides a lot more economic security for, for aspiring young male footballers, whether they're at the absolute pinnacle of their career or whether they are, you know, a journeyman player player who might go from A-League club to A-League club. But the, the fact of the matter is that um, that the women's game uh, has not provided that same level of economic security over uh, recent times, uh, let alone the entire history of the women's game in this country and around the world. And uh, and the parity that's built into this uh, this new CBA, whilst not compromising the the contributions that the Socceroos and the, the men's game make, is, uh, is one of the real... Uh, high points of the deal. We're talking to the co-CEO of the PFA, Bo Bush. Uh, your thoughts on that, Joe? Absolutely. You know, I think what we wanted to achieve, you know, we'd seen some of the regulations act as a little bit of an anchor. So by that, I mean, we'd made great progress with the minimum wage over the past few years and taken some really important steps forward in the W League. But we hadn't seen this market for players really increase and their value going up and up in terms of the salaries they could command. So by being able to do a couple of creative things and being able to work um, collaboratively with APL, we're able to increase something that's called the salary cap floor, which will mean the minimum investment into the squads will increase. Then we're going to also be able to combine that with, um, importantly, which I think is absolutely crucial, expansion as well. So there's going to be more demand for talent. Then we're going to have this wonderful opportunity with the Women's World Cup. So again, I think I sort of probably harping on the same point, but we're continuing to get these compounding gains, which I think is going to be to be really important. But as I said a little bit earlier today to someone, there's still a huge amount of work to do in the women's game and we want to get our salaries up so that we're seeing full-time professionalism in here and that we're producing these world-class players that can fully commit to the sport. And we've got a way, way to go on that. And one of the challenges we're going to have to navigate is a type of orderly um, progression into out of this sort of part-time 
error into full-time professionalism and that's hopefully going to be a great challenge for us all to um, deal with um, but that's going to be hopefully the next big challenge that we confront in in the W League. And structurally, uh, some of the funding from the, the new CBA guarantees uh, money allocated to the PFA so that you can service footballers properly and uh, and provide uh, support to the youth academies, the player development program. I like the fact that there's a, a one and a half million over the life of the CBA allocated to tra- transitional sport as well. So um, that's um, the, these are key structural and foundational elements to, to provide that uh, security and, uh, and, and life security for players after their careers. Is of players are inherently short term and and precarious. You know that's something Brendan would would always uh, remark to us when I was fortunate to be a player and he'd come out and speak to us. And I think I've certainly got to see that um, in the role. And what we've been able to build through the player development program is we've been able to make sure that players can look after players. And by that I mean we've built a fit for purpose program. That means if you require wellbeing support, you can get access to a confidential counselling service at any time you require it. And last year we provided over two hundred confidential confidential counselling sessions, provided over 150 education grants. And all those sort of things speak to a commitment of the players to supporting each other, but also importantly to the industry supporting players in these areas. And what we spoke about a lot in the negotiations was that we didn't want to just develop try and develop world-class players we wanted to develop world-class people and we think the play development program is a real foundational part of making sure that when someone comes into their our system they leave it not only with the benefit of having been a professional footballer but also being set up for hopefully a great life after the sport as well a-league fans we love a marquee player um can you talk about um the the comments around designated players and i think all fans would love to know how many marquee players and how many designated players can each a-League club have and who sits within the cap and who sits without the cap and and, and how are those uh, decisions made? Yeah, so how the marquee players will be the same as previous, so clubs will be able to contract two. The designated players, the way they will work is that for the first year of the deal, clubs will be able to contract at least one designated player and their salary can be between $300,000 and $600,000 and that can sit outside the salary cap so it doesn't count towards um, the maximum player payments but by year three of the deal the clubs can contract up to uh, two of these designated players so that's a significant amount of money that they can invest and the idea behind that is to give clubs more flexibility to be able to invest in areas that they think will be beneficial to them so that was really crucial. But most of the other architecture that sat around the cap will stay the same. But we've also been able to make some tweaks to loyalty as well too, which we think will help start to address some of that sort of chronic churn we've seen in contracting in the league. And one of the big areas that hasn't been discussed too much publicly yet is clubs being able to contract more scholarship players as well too. So what we'd seen is that there'd be a lot of Y-League contracted players that were training regularly with the A-League team because of the cap that was placed previously on scholarship players. Now they'll be able to contract up to 16, and we think that's a first step towards building a fit-for-purpose Y-League model where we can introduce full-time professionalism for a, a essentially reserves of the A-League, and there'll be more players in the professional football system, but also, importantly, being paid a decent wage as well. Well, both people who listen to the show are passionate about the game in this country, so um, I'm sure they'll love to hear the fact that uh, that the ship is being steered in the right direction with the finances going in the right way. Thanks so much for joining us on, on the show, mate, and uh, we'll look forward to having you back on again real soon. No worries. Thanks for having me on, guys. 
co-CEO of the Professional Footballers Association, Bo Bush. All right, stick around next on Box to Box. It is stoppage time, the extended edition of stoppage time. Derek Dyson is back. We're going to talk a lot of football in that final wrap of the show. Stick around on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. It's been a busy show already so far. And we're wrapping it up with our new extended edition of Stoppage Time. Derek Dyson will uh, get us going in a moment. But uh, one thing that hasn't changed is our sponsors. We talked about Storage King earlier on. Right now at Chemist Warehouse, there's half price off big brand vitamins. That's half price off Blackmore, Swiss, Biogland, Go Healthy, Nature's Own, Caruso's, Life Space, Nature's Way, Synovus, Ethical Nutrients, and I'm loving my backing track back in there, Inner Health, and many more big brands. The sale excludes bulk sizes and retail limits apply. Also, save on big brand cosmetics like L'Oreal, Maybelline, Revlon, Nude by Nature, Rimmel, and Sally Hansen, plus 40% off W7 and Flower Cosmetics. It's all on special. The sale ends... On September the 26th, Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every single day. Okay. All right, Derek. There has been a lot happening in football this past week. There always is. But there was no more bizarre story than the Argentina-Brazil match being abandoned amid farcical and confused scenes. Just explain it for people who weren't uh, paying as close attention as we were. Yeah, absolutely. They, what you need to know is that Argentina had travelled to Brazil, to Sao Paulo to be more specific, to um, take part in a qualifier for, for, the, for the World Cup. Uh, all was going to plan after five minutes, uh, but what happened was a Brazilian government agency came onto the pitch to stop the game after it accused four of Argentina's Premier League players, and that included Emilio, uh, excuse me, Emiliano Martinez, uh, Christian Romero, and Giovanni Los Celso, um, of violating the country's COVID nineteen quarantine rules. And that was just the start of it. Chaos ensued. Um, people didn't really know what was going on. Lionel Messi uh, emerged from the Argentina dressing room at one point wearing a photographer's bib to see if he could get things sorted. And he was talking with his good friend Neymar. Um, lots of shrugging of shoulders uh, at that point. Um, and look, apparently those officials that stormed the pitch had been trying to intercept the Argentina team at their hotel. And then... And then uh, on the way to the ground, but they got stuck in traffic in Sao Paulo, which I'm sure Edge will tell you is a pretty easy thing to do in in, in that city. Um, and, uh, you know, the Brazilian football authorities had actually said it was okay to play the match, but this government agency said, um, said, said that it wasn't because uh, players that have come from the UK um, had to quarantine for 14 days and apparently the Argentinian players hadn't and they had uh, lied on their paperwork. So that's basically, Rob, that is basically what happened. So the match was abandoned. We don't know whether the, you know, when this game will be replayed and obviously the recriminations are now starting to take place. Bizarre. Just crazy stuff, isn't it? uh, uh, I just love the very thought of the, uh, 
the and visa um, health authorities, as uh, their name, uh, racing through uh, the streets of Sao Paulo uh, to uh, to try and catch the Argentine team, and then arriving at the stadium, realizing the game was on, and thinking, no, this game's not going ahead. And then and then, as we saw the vision edge, I mean, is it, it look? You love South America. You're a passionate South American uh, supporter, and uh, and for good reason, because you know the the joy of football uh, that springs from South America is is something that that we all love. But this sort of stuff really, it's fitting of amateur hour, isn't it? Well, I mean, forgive me for seeing the irony in some of this stuff. You know, Brazil had been providing special dispensation to football all throughout the pandemic, even when four thousand Brazilians a day were dying. Just get your head around that. Fourth, mm. at the peak of their uh, second wave. 4,000 people were dying every single day, yet football was continuing to operate. And obviously there was dispensation given to Copa America, which was staged in Brazil at the last moment. So how there wasn't a dispensation provided for um, the Argentinian players coming in, they'd been in Venezuela before they arrived in Brazil. And Derek rightly points out that um, uh, they can, I don't know if they lied on their paperwork or just conveniently forgot being Argentinas that, oh, yeah, actually, I was in England uh, 10 days ago. But, uh, you know, it's just uh, it, it's just a bit crazy. But having said all of that, it's going to be FIFA's secretive disciplinary committee that's going to decide on what to do with this fixture because there is a glut and a backup of fixtures in, uh, in the South American uh, Confederation brought about by um, the Copa America and, and obviously the, the previous... Uh, uh, not getting away games in previous international windows. So there's a, a lot of work to do. But I did enjoy, Derek highlighted it, I did enjoy the great mates Neymar and Messi standing with each other because um, there was a throng of people on the field trying to sort this out. And just to one side, my, they caught my gaze. They were standing there with their hands over their mouths having a good giggle. And uh, I'm sure they saw that... Uh, I'm sure that they were thinking that this is a bit of a joke. And Derek, yes, it was a joke. It's, it certainly was, and FIFA have launched disciplinary proceedings into both member associations, but inadvertently may well have launched a investigation into itself because there is a match delegate who FIFA um, who works for FIFA that they appoint, whose role is to oversee those regulations and to make sure that those regulations are being uh, adhered to. So whether uh, Argentina or not did did complete the paperwork or whether they fudged the paperwork, FIFA could indeed be investigating them investigating themselves here. But maybe Edge, there's a bit of post Copa America beef here because obviously um, Brazil, I believe pinched the Copa America from Argentina and maybe there's something there there's something in that yeah there is there's a lot of um, tension between the European clubs and the South American uh, Confederation Conmebol because nobody wanted Copa America to go here the Argentinians Argentinians didn't the Ecuador uh, the Ecuadorians didn't the uh, Colombians didn't and um, and Brazil sort of snatched it at the last moment the players definitely didn't want to play it they wanted to uh, can Copa America because of the pandemic and just focus on the World Cup qualifiers to ensure the situation that's developed now where there's three games every window instead of two, putting pressure on players and clubs and a whole heap of things. But as we know, uh, in in the world game, um, when you've been in it as long as I have, Conmebol, the South American Confederation, they always, they're always right. 
they're always right and they have their own way of doing things. Well, let's move on to something slightly slightly less controversial. I just wanted to pick out England in Group I of their qualifying for the uh, Qatar 2022 World Cup in Warsaw. We saw a rare blip there, guys. Uh, England, of course, it seemed like a routine uh, victory for them at one stage. Harry Kane scored a, a fantastic goal, only the second time he scored outside the box for England. But, of course, uh, that late, late goal uh, in Warsaw sent that crowd wild maybe a little too wild we saw again a repeat of the scenes uh you know the booing of the knee and some quite hostile uh, behavior towards the england players maybe not quite as hostile as uh, as as budapest but england are four points ahead of uh, albania it is a blip ultimately rob and um that you know you've got to you've got to hand it to england that they've really kicked on from that disappointment of the euro finals yeah it uh, it was a blip but uh, but I, I would have thought that uh with the the game pretty much in their keeping, you, you talk about that Harry Kane goal. They had plenty of opportunities to secure the game with their second. Uh, you know they'd quieten the crowd in Warsaw, and and let's uh, not overestimate Poland. They were the one of the disappointments of the Euros. Uh, they uh, um, they ranked twenty seventh in the world, and and if England had have lost to Iran, who were ranked twenty sixth, there would have been hell to pay. So, you know, I I think that this is a is a question that still remains over England. Yes, they've done exceptionally well, and yes. The uh, qualification these days, the qualification process is set up for them to pretty much skate through to Qatar unscathed. But uh, you know, there's still a lot of questions about Sarath Gareth Southgate and uh, and his capacity to, to, to nail things shut. The uh, you know the, the goal was scored because uh, the, uh, the the poles just threw everything but the kitchen sink at a very tired England side, and, and Southgate did not put one substitute onto the ground. So you know, I got to ask the question: Has he learnt much? I mean, they've done well and they're winning games, but has he learnt the lessons of um, of the loss at Wembley? He's certainly a very conservative manager, and, and we saw that in the Euro uh, 2020 final. And as you said, no substitutions in the England uh, side of things. Poland used all five of their substitutes, and of course, uh, one of their substitutes, in fact, scored. I mean, Robert Lewandowski, who was carrying this team more or less on his shoulders for the entire game with a with a great ball, and it was a great header and. I mean, Edge, I suppose when, when we look at England and we look at Qatar 2022, you know, they've got this established 11 now, I think. You know, uh, Gareth likes, for, uh, you know, he likes uh, Phillips and, and Rice in the middle. He likes Kane at the top. But I think what's most exciting is England's youth. Um, and, uh, you know, you've got the likes of Jude Bellingham, who was exceptional in the last game, albeit against Andorra. Jaden Sancho can't even get a look in. So, you know, maybe Gareth Southgate should be deploying some more of that talent from his bench. Yeah, he probably should. I mean, football fans would have woken up all over the world and and seen that in the last two games, um, England's had a win in Budapest and a draw in Warsaw, and they probably think, yeah, that's that's about uh, that's about what to expect. Don't forget, England have not lost a World Cup qualifier since two thousand and nine. They'll cruise to qualification in this group, no doubt about it, but. Did they look like a World Cup winner? Not to me. Poland had them pinned. They were under pressure for long parts of the game. And, and their goal, I mean, um, Harry Kane, it was a thunderous strike. And as you said, he's only second ever goal from outside the box. So um, they need to find uh, two or three more players to really bridge the gap to the big, um, 
the big nations who will play off for the uh, the World Cup final. I, I don't think they can beat the South Americans yet. Now, you mentioned uh, England going through, let's face it, another predictable qualifying um, group uh, and reaching, you know, let's say with ease, Qatar 2022. Now, one person that wants to change the, this edge is Arsene Wenger. Now, you know Arsene Wenger, you know, I love Arsene Wenger. If, you know, if it was genetically possible for me to have children with Arsene Wenger, I, I, I may well do so such as my reverence for, for the great man. But it's somehow ironic for a guy that used to complain so much about too many international fixtures for a guy that seemed to be almost like a football communist, uh, you know, very much about player welfare, very much on the side of the fans, that he's been pushed out by a patsy, you know, as a patsy by Gianni Infantino to sell this World Cup every two years. Edge, can you, can you think of any good reason why this is a good idea? Well, we're about to find out, because as we record this um, podcast in the next sort of 24 hours, so next week we'll know a bit more, but um, Wenger is going to release his plan in detail, and and snippets snippets of it have broken out. So he's talking about reducing international breaks to two a year, uh, one in March and one in October. Um, So basically condensing a qualification process for the World Cup into four windows. Um, and um, he says that he has um, gone to great lengths of consultation with all the confederations on how they'll get away <laughs> their own qualification processes here. The, 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 the clubs will love that. The European clubs complain endlessly about the number of international breaks and losing players at pivotal times in their seasons. The players are going to love it too because he's proposing a 25-day blackout, a break after each international tournament that ensures, uh, enshrines a, a holiday period for the players and, and they can't go into clubs um, while that break is on. Um, and he's obviously looking to rebalance the calendar and FIFA's financial dominance, and, and this is where they'll, they are at... Uh, loggerheads with UEFA on this. UEFA's going to hate it. Nation Leagues is doomed. Um, however, um, Champions League will become uh, more more significant, more important. Asia, Africa, CONMEBOL, CONCACAF, uh, they will all love it. It means more money. Um, for me, there's a lot of dud uh, f- uh, FIFA World Cup qualifiers. Look at the Socceroos, 10 wins in a row. Spain lost its first World, World Cup qualifier just a, f- a few days ago since 1996. We talked about England not losing a World Cup qualifier since 2009. Uh, the smaller nations, uh, my Gibraltar, uh, uh, places like Andorra, you know, San Marino, Faroe Islands, they're going to have to battle it out to qualify for the, the, the main game, which is the, the, the final uh, qualification round. So when you think about all of that, it probably doesn't sound too bad. Arsene Wenger, he's going to... He's, our, our man... Arsene Wenger. He, yes, Arsene Wenger. He's going to... He's going to detail everything. I actually think um, this has got a very, very big chance of getting up. This is Edge, the, the commercial sort of uh, um, beast that he is, uh, wanting to have more opportunities once uh, COVID is over to take tours to more World Cups. We can see through that thin veneer, Edge. Uh, uh, the thing that Arsene Wenger uh, says, though, that reassures... You're a cynic, Rob. You are a cynic. I'm thinking, about, I'm thinking about all the... 
of course the, you the are. underpinning foundations of our great. No, but he says this is us, and Wenger says the idea is really to improve the quality of the game and the competitions. There is no financial intention behind it. <laughs> That's what I like about us. He's just really turned, hasn't he? <laughs> what, what a fiasco. Anyway, look, one way or the other, something's going to happen. We don't know what it is. You can never really tell between FIFA and UEFA. They're, they're two, like two big dogs scrambling. Grab your crash hat. And... Yeah, exactly. Grab your crash well, hat. Hey, it's going to um, be a rough ride. It will. All right, uh, Derek, uh, thank you for your uh, deep dive analysis in this new version of Stoppage Time, mate. Uh, we are bringing home our first edition of the show in its new era, and uh, we've had a lot of fun. Well done. Thank you very much, Sense. I enjoyed that. Not at all. And uh, to Willem and Damo, uh, thank you very much, gentlemen. And Michael, uh, I enjoyed that as well. Uh, a, a bit of fun, a bit more uh, time to, to relax and, and, uh, and talk over the questions and, and mull over the answers. Yes, Rob, it was always an excellent uh, excellent uh, period where we spend uh, talking about the World Game. And um, you heard it here first, World Cup every two years. <laughs> Rubber stamped and endorsed by Michael Ledgley. All right, well done. Mate, um, we'll see you next week. Yeah, we will. Yeah, when we and return to go from one end of the pitch to the other. Hey, isn't that my line? In the world game. It is. On Box to Box. <laughs>